The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We did introduce this book last week, and uh, we spent some time digging into the kind of the background and what was leading up to this book. This morning, we want to dive into it. And uh, we're starting this book, as I said last week now, because the first chapter of Matthew, of course, is all about the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so we're timing the beginning of this book to time with our celebration of the arrival of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll look at his actual birth in verses 18 to 25. But this morning, we want to look at the first 17 verses, which, of course, is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It is his pedigree. It is his lineage. It is his bloodline. And I know for most of us, when we come to sections in Scripture like this, we're quick to just keep reading very quickly, skim past this, and get to the real action. Uh, If you're honest, that's what happens when you read those genealogies in Genesis or in 1 Chronicles or even here in Matthew chapter 1. We tend to just want to get to the good stuff. And yet, I have to tell you, this is a tremendous passage. It's not just a list of names. It is a marvelous passage that proves that Jesus Christ has the right ancestry to be king. If you were here last week, we said that this is the theme of the book of Matthew, the kingship of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. And Matthew presents Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. That's his whole aim. He wants to present Christ as the king of the Jews, the one who has anticipated in the Old Testament, that he is the heir of the kingly line. This is the theme of the book of Matthew, the king and his kingdom. And as I said last week, Matthew spends considerable amount of time quoting from and alluding to the Old Testament because he's writing mostly to a Jewish audience. They understand the Old Testament. And so Matthew quotes at least 60 times from the Old Testament and gives another 250 allusions to it because he wants us to clearly understand that this Christ is who was promised in the Old Testament. There is a phrase that occurs frequently in this book. You could see it down in verse 22 of the first chapter. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That phrase occurs at least 10 to 15 times here in this book, and he says it repeatedly because he wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the one whom the Old Testament promised would come. It's a story that finds its completion in Christ. And so, it makes sense to us that Matthew would begin his book with a genealogy. If his interest and his commitment is showing us how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it would make sense to us that he begins his book with a genealogy that takes us back into the Old Testament. This is a monumental claim of Jesus Christ to be king. Think about it. Who comes claiming to be king? This is a monumental assertion. And so if that assertion is true, then it has to be corroborated by solid evidence. 
If he really is the king, then it needs to be confirmed and substantiated, and there must be irrefutable proof that the claims of Christ to be king and savior are justified. In other words, he needs to have the right credentials. You may remember about a decade ago, in our country, there was a birther controversy. Remember this? President Obama, uh, many were asserting that he did not have the right credentials. In order to be president or vice president of the United States, for that matter, you need to be a natural-born citizen of this country. No immigrant or no naturalized citizen can become president or vice president of this country. You have to be a natural-born citizen of the U.S. And so for a while, there was a lot of controversy, and many were questioning whether he had the right credentials until in April of 2011, he issued a birth certificate stating that he was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. And that quelled the controversy. It proved that he had the right credentials. Whether you believe it was true or not, that's what was produced. He had the right credentials. That's what Matthew's doing here. Matthew is showing us that Jesus Christ has the right credentials. Because Matthew understands the single most important question that any Jew at that time would be asking, and it's this question, is he a descendant of David, and does he have a rightful place in that succession? That's the question any Jew at this time is asking. They want to know, is he in the line of David? And you'll remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we looked at it briefly last week, in the Davidic covenant, there is a promise that David would always have a son on the throne, that the true son of David would, would remain on his throne. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, it promises that David would have a house and a kingdom and a throne forever. In other words, there's a coming true son of David who will establish and sit on the throne of David in perpetuity. And so the question in any Jewish person's mind at that time is, is he that individual? And the resounding answer to that question and the undeniable conclusion is yes. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He has the pedigree. He has the ancestry. He has the lineage to prove it. This is the evidence that any Jew would want to know. And you need to know that the Jews were fastidious in their keeping of records. They were firmly committed to understanding their ancestry. They, they, they were meticulous about their genealogical records. In fact, up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, every Jew could research exactly where they came from. They, they had a clear, very concise accurate record of genealogies. Well, those were all destroyed in 70 AD when the temple was burned. They were committed to this. They were interested in this. They were passionate about this. And so as Matthew begins his book, he wants us to understand right from the beginning, Christ is exactly who he says he is. Let's read Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Ruth. Uh, Rahab, rather, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. These guys are not from West Michigan. (laughs) Verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Tremendous passage. I had to practice (laughs) some of those names. I want you to notice some things. I'm going to give you some points here in just a moment. I'll give you a little outline Um, But before we do that, I want you to notice some things. I want you to notice some things about this genealogy. And to help us do that, I want you to also turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. So I want you to hold your finger in Matthew chapter 1, and then I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 3. And uh, for just a few moments, I I would like to give you some comparisons and contrasts between these two genealogies. Some things I want you to notice that I think help us understand exactly what Matthew is doing here. And the first thing I want you to notice is that Matthew's genealogy, look in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham, and it moves forward in time to David. So notice chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, both reference Abraham. Then skip down to verse 6, we move forward in time to David. And then all the way down to verse 16, we come to Joseph and Jesus. So Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham, moves forward, and goes down to the time of Christ. Now turn over to Luke chapter 3. I want you to notice here that there's a little bit of different order to this. I want you to notice that in Luke's genealogy, he begins with Jesus, and he works backward. So Matthew moves forward, Luke moves backward. It begins with Jesus in Luke 3.23, and it goes backwards. It goes back to David, verse 31. Skip down to verse 
31, you see the son of David. Then you go all the way down to verse 34, and there we have Abraham. But notice something different about this genealogy. It keeps going. It keeps going all the way back to Adam. Verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We said last week that there's a reason why Luke does this, because Luke's point is to present Jesus as the son of man. And so he takes us all the way back to the very first man, Adam, to prove that Jesus is the Son of Man. So those are one of the first things I want you to notice. One, Abraham is the beginning of Matthew's genealogy, and it moves forward to Christ and stops there at Christ. And then I want you to notice Luke begins with Jesus, moves backward, and goes all the way back to Adam. That's the first thing to notice here. I want you to also notice another comparison between these two genealogies, that from Abraham to David, both genealogies are absolutely identical. So if you were to compare Matthew 1, verses 2 through 6, from Abraham to David, and if you were to look at Luke 3, verses 31 to 34, David back to Abraham, they're exactly identical. You'll just have to trust me on that, but you can go look at all the names. They're identical. They're all the exact same names. However, I want you to notice that when we come to David, these genealogies are different. And I want you to notice that, look in uh, Matthew 1, uh, verse uh, 6, starting with David, down to verse 16, we follow the, the line of David through Solomon. But if you go to Matthew, or Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 to 31, we follow the line of David through Nathan. So you understand what we're saying so far? From Abraham to David, the genealogies are identical. From David to Jesus, they're different. In fact, it appears that Jesus has different grandparents through Joseph. So notice chapter 1 of Matthew verse 16 Notice it says in Matthew 1.16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Who's the father of Joseph in that verse? It's Jacob. Now come with me over to Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. It says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as he was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Um, You can only have one father. So we have an issue here. How is Joseph the son of Jacob in Matthew 1.16, and how is he also the son of Eli or Heli in Luke 3, verse 23? This is one of the most difficult interpretive issues in this book. And you're going to have to know how to resolve this. I think the best way to understand this is the fact that Matthew is presenting us the genealogy of Jesus Christ from David to Christ through the line of Joseph, whereas Luke is presenting us the genealogy of Christ from David to Christ through the line of Mary. So Matthew traces this line through Solomon, and Luke traces this line of Mary through Nathan. So again, just compare with me. Look at Matthew uh, 1, verse 6. 
says David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. So we know for certain that David is tracing his, or Matthew is tracing the lineage from David through his son Solomon, that line. And if we come to chapter 3 of Luke, verse 31, notice again that we're tracing the line of David through his son Nathan. In other words, these are the genealogies of two brothers, from David to Jesus. Solomon being in Matthew's genealogy, Nathan, another son of David, being in Luke's genealogy. And so our understanding of this is that Matthew is presenting Joseph's line from David, and Luke is presenting Mary's line from David. So Luke chapter 3, verse 23, where it says that Joseph was the son of Eli, or Heli, we actually believe that that's him being the son of Heli by marriage to Mary. He's technically Eli's son-in-law. Does that make sense? Let me show a picture. Jacob, if you could put this picture up here, I hope you can see that. This is what we're trying to say. Beginning with David at the top, if you looked at the left-hand side of that little diagram, Matthew's genealogy would take us through the line of Joseph through the line of Solomon, coming to Jacob, the blood father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary. So we believe the left side of that diagram would present Joseph's genealogy through David's son Solomon, where if you looked at the right-hand side of that diagram, we're looking at Mary's genealogy through David's other son, Nathan, to Heli, who is the legal father of Joseph, not the actual father or biological father, but the legal father through Joseph's marriage to Mary, resulting in Joseph and Mary's line coming together in Jesus Christ. So what we're trying to show here is that Solomon's line, this is very important, Solomon's line was the royal line, the left-hand side of that diagram, and Mary's line in Luke 3 is the bloodline, the physical line. That's very important to understand because if Jesus is going to be king, he has to have a Davidic genealogy from both sides. It has to come through Joseph and it has to come through Mary. Now go back to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to notice in Matthew 1 verse 16... That Matthew is very, very careful here to say that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Notice Matthew 1, verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. He doesn't say that uh, Joseph was the father of Jesus because he wasn't. Biologically, physically, he was not. He was the adopted father of Jesus, but he was not the physical, biological father of Jesus. And and notice how careful Matthew is in this. There's a phrase, you heard it as I was reading the text earlier, there's a phrase that occurs over and over, was the father of, was the father of, A was the father of B, so-and-so was the father of another person. This is the phrase that occurs over and over and over again in this genealogy, 39 times. And then we come to verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Matthew's very clear. Jesus' 
line, his physical line, comes through Mary, not through Joseph. And so this is all critical, as I said, because if someone is going to be king, they must be in the royal line from Solomon's line. They must have kingly right to the throne, so they must be in a line that comes down through Solomon, but at the same time, they have to be a blood relative of David, and that's traced through Mary. So we have two lines going through David, one through Solomon that leads to Joseph, which gives him his royal right to be the king, and one through Nathan, another son of David, that leads to Mary to prove that he is the seed of David physically and biologically. It's tremendous. Jesus is exactly who the Old Testament said would come. He was the physical blood descendant of David through Mary, and he was the royal descendant of David through Joseph. There's something else I want you to notice. You're back in Matthew chapter 1. I want you to notice in verse 11 the mention of an individual by the name of Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, or also Coniah, all the same individual. Verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. Stick with me for just a moment because this is truly uh, amazing how all this fits together. There was this individual, verse 11, by the name of Jeconiah, who was in the line of Solomon, but God cursed him. He was an idolater, as many were, but in this case, God cursed the line of Jeconiah. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. It says, thus says the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. God pronounces a curse on Jeconiah, and says, no son of this man or any of his descendants will ever sit on the throne of David. Got a problem. You see the problem? Jesus is in this line. Jesus is in the line Going from David to Solomon all the way down to Joseph, we've got a dilemma because Joseph is a direct descendant of Jeconiah and therefore the firstborn of Joseph's house would be the heir apparent to the throne, but this could not happen if Jesus is a biological son of Joseph. In other words, if Jesus had been a physical descendant of Jeconiah, he would not have been able to occupy David's throne because of that curse in Jeremiah 22. But he's not a physical descendant, is he? He's a physical descendant of Mary. 
but he's in Joseph's line so that he has the royal right to rule. Jesus was the physical descendant of David through Nathan in Mary's line, but not of Joseph. Joseph was Jesus' legal father, not his biological father, so the curse bypasses Christ. Isn't that tremendous? Did God know what he was doing? The curse is not passed on to to Jesus because Jesus is not a biological child of Joseph. Well, there's one more thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice in verse 17 that Matthew crafts his genealogy in three symmetrical sections of 14 generations each. Notice verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. We're not entirely sure why Matthew crafted his genealogy this way. It may be just to aid in helping us remember uh, the order and what was involved here, or some have suggested that the name David in Hebrew actually is equivalent to the number 14. You can assign Hebrew values to names, and so his value in Hebrew, his Hebrew numerology added up to 14, and David's really a key figure here. You can see in verse 1 he's mentioned, you can see in verse 6 David is mentioned, and you can see again at verse 17 David is mentioned twice. Well, all of those are some observations. Here's what's incredible. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel saying once upon a time. <clears throat> Jesus was a real person who came in a line of real people. This is no fairy tale. Matthew begins his book with a family tree to prove a historical Jesus. And what I want to do for just a few moments in the rest of our time that we have is I want to show you some incredible evidences of the grace of God in Matthew's genealogy. There are some individuals who really you should start scratching your head wondering why are they in this genealogy. And I think it all points to the grace of God. I think it demonstrates the fact that Christ was born into a line of sinners so that he could redeem the sinners in the line in which he actually came. And so I I think what you see in this genealogy is the evidence of the abundant grace of God, that the gospel is for all people, that Jesus really did come to save sinners like us and like those in his own genealogy. So let me give you four evidences of God's grace in the royal credentials of Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. And by the way, we're not going to look at every name, so don't worry. Uh, We will not do that to you. Uh, First evidence of God's grace in the royal credentials of Jesus is, is the inclusion of Abraham and his descendants. Here's the first evidence of the kindness and grace of God that we see here. It's the inclusion of Abraham and his descendants. Notice verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 1. It says, The record... Of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. It's important that Matthew starts his genealogy here in 
with Abraham because as we said last week, God promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis chapter 12 that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So in order for the nations of the earth to be blessed, that king needed to come from the line of Abraham. He needed to come through that seed, that family tree. And of course, we know there's a lot of good things about Abraham. He was a man of faith. When God said in Genesis 12, I want you to leave your country and I want you to go to the promised land, the land where I'm calling you, Abraham went. He packed up his belongings and he moved to the place that God told him to go. And so he is a model of faith. He is an example of one who walks by faith. Romans 4 uses him as an illustration of what true faith looks like. In Hebrews 11, he's in the hall of faith to demonstrate the fact that he is a model of faith. And in a sense, we need to emulate Abraham and his willingness to trust God in whatever circumstances we're in, even when they don't make sense. But you know the rest of the story about Abraham. He was a great sinner. Abraham was not a perfect man. On at least two occasions, he lied, and he told his wife to lie. She was beautiful, and so he told her to, to lie when someone comes and asks whether you are my wife, just lie, because tell them you're my sister, because I don't want to get in trouble, and so let's just lie about it. On two occasions, he did this, which was only half true. And by the way, a half-truth is a whole lie. Because if you shade the truth so that it's no longer the truth, that half-truth is now a full lie. We also know about Abraham, that he slept with Sarah's servant, Hagar, when she convinced him to try to conceive a child that way. This man was far from perfect. Yet here he is in the line of Christ. What about his descendants? Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. You remember Isaac, who was Abraham's son. He showed favoritism to Esau over Jacob. You remember Esau was the hunter and Jacob was the non-hunter. And so Isaac was much more favorable towards his son Esau over Jacob. And he also lied about his wife being his wife, Rebecca. You remember he told her to lie as well. See, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? This man was far from perfect. And then there's Jacob. Notice verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. You remember what Jacob was like. He was a deceiver. That's what his name means. He deceived his father into getting the birthright that was intended for his brother Esau. He stole it from Esau. And he learned favoritism from his father. And so when he became a father, Jacob had a favorite son named Joseph over the rest of his other sons. These men were far, far from perfect. They were sinners in need of a savior. And by God's grace, they're included in the line of the Messiah, which is just a marvelous demonstration of the grace of God that, that Christ was born into a line of sinners because he came to save sinners. Tremendous. Well, number two, there is a 
second evidence of the incredible grace of God and this royal credentials of Christ. It is number two, the, the inclusion of four outcast women. Four outcast women. Women are included in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, and you need to know that this is very rare. There are five women actually included, included Mary, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But Jewish genealogies did not usually contain women. They were usually patrilineal. They just traced the line of the genealogy from male to male, typically leaving females out, but not in this case. Matthew, in his great wisdom showing the grace of God, includes five women, four of them who were in some ways, suspect. Let me me show you. Verse 3, we meet someone named Tamar. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Then come down to verse 5, we meet two other women, Rahab and Ruth. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And then Bathsheba, She's listed in verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Two of those women were very suspect in their character. And two of the others were put into situations somewhat beyond their control. Let's look at these briefly. I want you to notice the first one in verse 3 is Tamar, Judah, was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I find this absolutely fascinating. So come with me over to Genesis 38. And let me just take a a few moments to to walk you through this. Uh, I think sometimes we forget some of what was happening here in the Old Testament. So let me take you to Genesis chapter 38. And let me just remind you of the circumstances surrounding Tamar. Uh, Notice with me first five verses of Genesis chapter 38. And it came about at the time that Judah delivered, uh, departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw that there was a certain uh, daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he named her him Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kazib that she bore him. So here's Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, who marries um, a Canaanite woman, and they have three sons together, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Then notice verse 6 and 7, now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Judah wants his son Ur to get married, he encourages the marriage to Tamar, but verse 7 says, but Ur... Judah's firstborn was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. God kills Ur. So Tamar is now a widow. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. This sounds kind of odd in our eyes, but there is a law, Deuteronomy 25, the Leverite law that says if a, a man passes away Uh, His brother is to encourage and engage in a relationship with his brother's wife to ensure that the line continues and bears offspring for the deceased brother. So that's what's happening here. 
However, verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so he went into his brother's wife. He wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. So God kills Ur, God kills Onan. Then verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house. Until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So Judah says to his daughter-in-law, why don't you wait a few years until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you, and then I will give him to you in marriage. So now verse 12, considerable time passes. A considerable amount of time uh, goes by, and the wife of Judah died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, and he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to, he had not been given to him, uh, she had not been given to him as a wife. You see the problem? She's thinking, uh, Judah, you promised me Shayla. Hasn't happened. She's upset. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, therefore, I will give you a young goat from the flock. So she said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Go down to verse 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she's more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. Scandalous. Verse 27. And it came about at the time that she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and he was named Zerah. Go back to Matthew 1, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. By Tamar. You see what's going on here? 
It's absolutely incredible. A daughter-in-law playing the prostitute, a father-in-law soliciting her, twins who are conceived, and Perez, one of those twins, is in the line of Christ, as is Tamar, who's mentioned by name here. Absolutely incredible. This, beloved, is God's grace that a prostitute, ends up in the genealogy of Christ. It actually gets worse. (laughs) You're thinking, how is this possible? (laughs) Matthew 1, verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Tamar was a once-off prostitute. Rahab was a professional. how she made her living. And you remember the story how in Joshua chapter 2, when the spies are sent from Joshua to go spy out the land, that they end up in the house of Rahab and she hides them. And the king comes to her and says, where are these men who've come to see you? Where are they? And so she quickly hides them on the roof and she lies to the king and tells them that she didn't know where they went. Then she let them down the wall so that they could escape and they in turn protected her. They promised to care for her and keep her safe when the Israelites came into the land. And and so what you have here is a professional prostitute who is in the line of Jesus Christ and she gives birth to to David's great-grandfather, Boaz. Is this not grace? Is this not evidence that Christ came to redeem sinners? Look at the next woman, also in verse 5, Ruth. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, Very clear, let's be very clear here, she was not a questionable woman, she was not a woman of disrepute, she was not a prostitute, she was, however, an outcast. She was a Gentile, she was a Moabitess, and you remember the story of Ruth, she married Naomi, not Naomi, that's not good, she married, (laughs) strike that from the record, where are we going as a church? She married Naomi's son. Let's clarify that. Remember, Naomi travels with her husband and her two sons to Moab, and her two sons marry two women there, one of those being Ruth, who marries her oldest son. Naomi's sons die. Naomi's husband dies. And here's Ruth saying to Naomi, just, just, I'll go with you. You want to go back to your people? I'll go with you. Here's a godly woman who had accepted the Lord as her own, who chose to go back with Naomi, back to Israel. And here she is in the line of Christ, the great-grandmother of King David. It's remarkable. There's one more woman. Verse 6, Bathsheba. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Your version may actually say she is called her of Uriah. She's actually not listed here by name. She is called her of 
Uriah. And you remember the story. She was bathing on a roof. King David saw her. King David ordered that she be brought. And King David engaged in an adulterous relationship with her. And not only that, he sent her husband Uriah to the front lines where he was killed in battle. There's a woman who committed adultery in the line of Jesus Christ. This is not just a list of names. This is an absolute declaration of the grace of God that Jesus Christ came in a line of sinners to redeem sinners. Two more very quickly. Two more evidences of this. Thirdly is the inclusion of David and his descendants. Number three is the inclusion of David and his descendants. Notice in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. We think of David in many positive ways, which we should. He was the author of many psalms that we love. He was also the greatest king Israel ever had prior to Christ. And he was a man after God's own heart. The only man in scripture that it is said that of. And yet, you know, this man had some serious character flaws. As we just said, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer, having Bathsheba's husband killed. He was a polygamist. Many, many wives. And he was a bad dad. Just look at what happened to his sons. And you realize that David didn't really do a good job of shepherding his sons. Ammon raped his sister Tamar. Absalom had Ammon killed. Then Absalom conspired to usurp the throne from David and Joab killed Absalom. He was a bad dad. He was a polygamist. Adulterer and murderer. And yet here he is. In the line of Christ. And his son, verse 6, Solomon, you know his story. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And 1 Corinthians 11, or 1 Kings 11 rather, tells us that he wholly devoted his heart to idols. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. He built a high place for Chemos, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain, which is east of Jerusalem. He did all of this for his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. He was an idolater, an adulterer. Notice verse 7, his son. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah. His son was even worse. What do we learn? This is God's grace. This is a line of unfaithfulness and immorality and adultery and idolatry. And yet, here's Christ coming in this very line to prove 
came to rescue sinners from themselves. Last, number four, is the inclusion of Mary. The inclusion of Mary, she is the fifth woman mentioned in this genealogy. Verse 16, skip down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. I wish we had more time, but we could go over to Luke 3 and Luke 1 and 2, actually, and just see God's abundant mercy. Here's a young teenage woman, a godly young woman, but unknown from an obscure village in Galilee called Nazareth, whom God chose to bring the Messiah through. She was a sinner. We need to remember this because the Roman Catholic Church has elevated Mary to a status that she does not belong. They, they say she's sinless, that she herself is the product of immaculate conception, which is not true. They say that she is a co-redemptrix, that she is a co-redeemer with Jesus, and they say that she is a co-mediatrix, a co-mediator with Jesus. She is none of those things. She is a humble young woman, godly, yes, but still a sinner who gave birth to her Savior, her Son. That's grace. It's incredible grace. And so what we have in Jesus Christ is not only a man who has the right to rule on the throne of David because he has the royal credentials, but you have in Jesus Christ the grace of God in bodily form. And he's come to rescue us. And friends, this is what Christmas is about. The coming of the true Son of God with all the royal credentials of a king who's come to lay his life down and to show that God's grace triumphs over sin. And that is a message that we need to hear because we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. Amen? Lord, we thank you for genealogies. so much here, so much, Lord, that we can learn, so much that we can discover about the incredible mercy and grace that you've shown us, and so much that we need to learn about our Savior, who really is exactly who he said he was. God, we praise you that we have a king who is also a redeemer. And we thank you that he has come in the right line, from the right lineage, with the right pedigree, with the correct ancestry, to sit on David's throne. And Lord, we thank you that he's coming again. Though he is not seated on that throne today, he is coming again, and he will sit on David's throne. And Lord, we do pray that it would be soon. Would Christ please return quickly? And until then, may we make much of him rejoicing in the great grace that's been shown us. It's in your son's name we pray.
You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.